Lord Jesus, we've sung that we trust in your unfailing love. And we pray that through our engagement with your word this evening, you would deepen our trust and confidence that that love will indeed never fail. Amen. Uh, Barry, could we have the first of those slides up, please? Some years uh, ago, only a few years ago, um, and this is from a terribly respectable um, science uh, periodical, um, researchers conducted uh, experiments to find out which parts of the body became uh, lit up with intense reactions under particular emotions. One of the things that surprised them was that it was um, much less dependent on the place of a particular emotion in, uh, uh, within a culture. It actually worked pretty much across uh, the world. So there are a list of, uh, of 14 emotions. As you might guess, uh, the more it tends towards red and yellow, the more intense the emotion is, the more it tends towards... Uh, black, it's neutral, and towards blue, that's really kind of cool. Things are cooling down there. So I thought we'd have some fun. I wish I'd got my pointer, but I loaned it to someone, and they haven't, sent it, they haven't given it back. So we'll just have to kind of call them top six. Oh, oh, thank you. Very good. Thank you, Barry. Um, but the trouble is, you've got it. Um, could we move that up a bit? Good, thank you. Um, uh, well, you were all thinking it, so I might as well acknowledge it. Um, okay, so I want to, uh, let's, let's have some fun for a minute. Let's have, let's have some guessing. Um, anyone want to guess what any of those um, emotions uh, represents? Go on, Martin. Uh, fourth one from the left top row is either in love or just had a stonkingly good meal. <laughs> um, well, it could be the second. Love is there, but it's not that one. Um, it could, be, it could be the second, though. Okay, let's keep going. Anyone else? Come on. It's... That big red one, anger. Which, which, one. which... Is that anger? No, no. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. You can tell which one is angry. Um, uh... No, no. A top left. Because the top left one, if you see, the fists are the ones, the bits that are in yellow. Um, and it really is the case that when you're angry, you want to punch someone. Apparently, that's what your, your, your fists sort of light up. Okay, anyone else? Go on. Jemima. Uh, no, no, let's get love out of the way because it's obviously a distraction. Um, <laughs> Uh, the second one on the bottom, I think, uh, is love. Uh, and the, the all-over glow of Martin's good meal, that is actually Martin after a good meal, but um, uh, the all-over glow is happiness. But the one that concerns us tonight is the Spider-Man character on the lower, le- on the lower list at number six. Yeah, six. Yeah, that's it. So, um, uh, could we have the uh, revelation and have the next slide up, please? There we go. 
Um, yes, I don't think there's anything, anything I want to kind of add, but the one that will concern us a little later is shame. We'll leave that up for a moment or two. And let's turn uh, to the scripture. We'll come back to that, don't worry, but try not to get too distracted by it. Please turn to page 737, like the man said. Okay, there's, I know we have uh, newcomers and visitors in church tonight. We're in a series uh, in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And this has been a long, very long uh, set of interactions between God and his people. The first place I want to take you tonight is actually to page 736, to chapter 49 and verse 14. But Zion, it's the people of God, said, The Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. The people of God are saying, God has forgotten us. So God uh, replies with the rest of, uh, or most of the rest of that chapter, beginning at 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Of course I haven't forgotten you. How could you think that? There's a rather odd verse at verse 24. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? And it's only the answer that tells you what the question meant. Again, in verse 24, they are doubting that God can do what he says. You'll know that I am the Lord, he says in verse 23, and they reply, can plunder be taken from warriors, captives rescued from the fierce? We are going to be captives. The people taking us are going to be fierce. Can life get better? But this is what the Lord says, verse 25, yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. Uh, Don't doubt my capacity to make things better. So, uh, if you take this background theme, God has forgotten us. That's the kind of background with which we go into chapter 50. This is what the Lord says, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Have I really lost touch with you? Have I abandoned you? Have I, is there a certificate to say I've divorced her? Then straight on, because of your sins you were sold, because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Isaiah wants them to know that the situation of suffering that they're in, and they're, he, he's seeing them in exile, the people now, this is not a sign that God has abandoned you, On the contrary, because you abandoned God, he is now punishing you, that's why you're in exile, so your suffering now is actually precisely because God is remembering you, not because he's forgotten you. That's why there was no one to answer in verse 2, when I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short? They have forgotten him. That's why no one answered. And that's the the, the theme, really, in verses 1 to 3 of of chapter 50. Look, this is... Let me tell you what I do. I, I, by a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. If I do that, then, of course, I can rescue you. Which means that if I can rescue you and have not rescued you, 
That's because what you're going through is for a reason. It is not because I've forgotten you. Well, we'll, we'll take it further, but I'm sure there's someone in church this evening who is sure that God has forgotten them. Doesn't doubt that God exists, but is sure that God has forgotten them. No, I haven't, says the Lord. And then this figure emerges. Verse 4. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. This figure, it's the third time we get one of these little um, extracts where God is addressed as the Sovereign Lord by the figure we call the servant. So in in distinction from the people who are sort of a waste of space, from verse 4 through to verse 9, the servant is addressing his sovereign Lord, or speaking about his sovereign Lord. And the servant comes to that task uh, equipped in certain ways. First of all, verse 4, he has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. In Isaiah, throughout Isaiah, from chapter 6 onwards, if you can remember back that far, where uh, Isaiah says, uh, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. From that point onwards, what comes out of your lips, the words are of supreme importance in Isaiah. So when Isaiah speaks of this servant, the qualification of the servant, the first primary qualification is that he has an instructed tongue. He knows the word of God. Secondly, same verse, he wakens my ear to listen. He has an instructed tongue and a listening and obedient ear. What he reads, what he knows, he follows up with obedience. Then later on, uh, uh, I have, verse 7, I have set my face like flint. There is a flint face of trust in God. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. An instructed tongue, a listening ear, a flint face, and finally, throughout verses 8 and 9, a strong confidence. Who's my accuser? Let him confront me. <coughs> Sorry. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me, who will condemn me. They will wear out like a garment, the moths will eat them up, but the sovereign Lord will still be around. So the servant walks into this picture. Instructed tongue, a listening ear, a flint face, and a, a strong confidence. And this this servant is obedient, but this obedience simply leads him to condemnation by others and to suffering. It's there in verse 6. The sovereign laws open my ears, verse 5, I've not been rebellious, I've not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Abandon all hope that if you increase your obedience to God, people will think you're a nicer person. They will not. 
it is universally true down history that the very priority that puts God first gets you in trouble. And this experience in verse 6, he goes through the experience, the, the, the beating of the back, the pulling out of the beard, the mocking, the spitting. It seems to me worthwhile just for a short time, because we don't often think about it, considering the place of shame. Uh, could we just have the slide up again? Thanks, Barry. It won't surprise you to know that. Um, thank you. It won't surprise you to know that um, uh, the the person who is the servant is Jesus. It's church. It's Sunday, so the answer has to be Jesus. But it's worth remembering that that is part of that. This shame is part of the experience that is his. If you just look at that face for a moment, I don't know when you last experienced shame. I was interested to think that both, both the Alpha Course, which we've prayed about, and Christianity Explored, which we use from time to time, they both have this picture of just imagine if on a, a, a blank wall, if up on that screen now we replayed your life, how much of it would cause you to, uh, to for, would cause your cheek to puff out with pride, which is next to it? And it really is the case, if you look there, that your, cheek, your, your chest rather does puff up with pride. It's the chest for pride where all the kind of emotion goes. But more importantly, how much of it would leave you covered in shame with a kind of burning face like you've got there in the shame picture? Jesus is crucified naked. The prisoners at Abu Ghraib were stripped and sexually humiliated, all in an Arab culture where masculinity is held as a deep honour. Our country has been impacted by honour killings, where families are shamed by the activity of their members, and they take it out on the women. Normally the actions causing shame are those of men, but they take it out on the women. Last December, the last of seven men was convicted of the honour killing of a woman called Banaz Mahmoud in 2006. The reality of shame may not be obvious to us if we pick up the average tabloid newspaper, but it's real in our culture. And if I could threaten you with having your life up on the screen then I think we'd all agree we would know what shame is. In guilt, we know we've done a bad thing. Shame, though, is different. Shame is, the, is not being in a position to quarrel with the verdict that we're a bad person. I wasn't sure whether to tell this story, but I, I, I think I will. I, don't, I have got beyond this, um, because it's a small man story. Um, I have got beyond this, so don't be too sympathetic. But uh, I've always been small. When I was uh, small at school, I was bullied. We had um, uh, lockers at school. You know what school lockers are like. They're very thin. 
These things were about six foot high, and the ceiling was seven foot six high. In other words, there was a gap of 18 inches at the top of the lockers. It's just the right size to put someone. And I can remember one of the... If this was the worst bullying I endured, then I think I probably got off quite lightly compared to many. But I would occasionally be put up there. And the worst thing about being there is you can't twist round to jump off the, the, the six foot. The six foot's fine, but you're kind of sideways. So the only thing you can do is roll off, and that means broken bones. So you don't do that. You just have to wait till someone collects you. And I remember the burning sense of shame at not being able to fight back. Not being in a position to quarrel with the place that I'd been put in. And again, I just want to highlight that there will be people here tonight, not everyone by any means, but there will be those who live with a deep sense of shame that comes from something. I don't know what. You'll have your own story, which is one of the reasons I didn't hold back from mine, because those stories are deep and their pain goes deep for most of us if we've not dealt with them. But this servant, for all that this happens to him, knows that God will not forget. And that makes him obedient where the people were not. It's an individual, one who finally gets right what others have got wrong. Look at verse 2 of chapter 50. When I called... Why was there no one to answer? The Lord God was walking in the garden and called out, Adam, where are you? And there was no answer, for he was ashamed and hid himself. It's God's problem since Adam that he calls and there is no answer. There's a lovely moment in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 10 um, when uh, Jesus uh, is depicted as coming before his father and saying, here I am, I have come to do your will. Through all of history, God has called, where are you? Adam, where are you? Where are you? You've gone missing again. Where are you? And finally one person turns up and says, here I am, I've come to do your will. Jesus has been put in a position of shame, verse 6, but he does not end up ashamed. And that is extraordinary. So extraordinary that John thinks it's worth recording that story of the woman in adultery, taken in adultery. She would have been deeply ashamed by the public shaming that was going on for her. And yet Jesus says to her, I do not condemn you, go in peace. Well, if there, wasn't any, if there was any doubt as to who the servant is, Verse 10 should clear it up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? To fear the Lord is to obey the servant. To obey the servant is to fear the Lord. These last verses make God and the servant equal. And it's almost like that moment where Jesus talks about the man who builds on sand and the man who builds on rock. Because there are two kinds of character in these last verses. There's the person who understands what the New Testament calls walking 
by faith, not by sight. Because the, uh, the godly uh, walk in the dark. Let him who walks in the dark, verse 10, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Trust and obey, as the old song used to go. But there's an alternative. Reject and perish. Because some of them are lighting fires and providing themselves with flaming torches. The faithless build their own torches, which will end up burning them. So reject and perish. And as we close, I want to to suggest the way that we need to take chapter 50. See, it would be so easy to turn it into a little morality lesson. I don't know how much you you come to church for little morality lessons. They're quite fun in their own way. Um, But uh, that's really not what we're here for. It could be that the point of the chapter is to say, these were bad people. Here comes the servant Jesus. He's a good person. Now, be like Jesus. That, it seems to me, will get us precisely nowhere because you won't do it. You won't do it because you can't do it. Uh, Verses 10 and 11 would leave us saying, well, we have to be one of them. Oh, what shall we do? Oh, um, well, we better be like Jesus. After the event that is Jesus, we cannot simply choose to be good. Jesus has told us that, taught us that. We cannot simply choose to be godly. We need what Jesus has done. And so I suggest that the point is not that little morality lesson about you go and be like Jesus, but as those verses say, it's something about trust in what Jesus has done, not what you are to do. And that the right way to take it is to say they are bad because they were unbelieving. Jesus is good and steadfast and believing, therefore trust him. Actually, of course, when you do trust him, you will end up looking like him and you will will end up being like Jesus. But the point is to trust Jesus, to trust God in Jesus. We need what Jesus has done. We cannot treat it as a morality tale because if we do and take on the idea that we just have to be like Jesus, we cannot live up to verses 7 to 9. We can't do that. When shame stares us in the face, we will be ashamed. We will not be those who are strong against it. We will not see the vindication. Little boys are still bullied, even if they follow Jesus. But faith knows, faith in Jesus knows that we look forward to a day of vindication, to a not yet. Jesus is the complete deal. He is faithful and therefore delivers. And he has seen the vindication that we have not yet seen, or we see only in part. And so I think the invitation at the end of this chapter to each one of us is to say, trust Jesus and not yourself. And it may sound very Sunday school, but there's normally someone in church who's never done it. Trust Jesus. Jesus, and not yourself. Verses 10 and 11 only work once we realize that verse 10 means 
Put your trust in the God who is made known in Jesus. I was very frustrated the other day to discover that what I thought was a great line I'd made up had been made up about 100 years ago by a great 19th century preacher. It's so frustrating when that happens. Um, So I won't tell you who he is, and I'll pretend that it was still me that thought of it. Uh, To believe in God is simply to believe God. It's not to believe about God. To believe in God is to believe God, to take God at his word. And if you've never done that, then I suggest tonight is a good time to start. That's what it is to follow Jesus. It is to take God at his word as it comes to us in Jesus. Jesus is the one to whom Isaiah looked. And again, I quote that song that we sang earlier, we trust in your unfailing love. There'll be someone here who has never trusted in God's love in Jesus, never looked to it to find an unfailing hope, an unfailing love. So I just invite you to do it tonight and to come to the bread and wine that we will offer later and recognize in it that as Jesus dies, he makes to you the promise of which Isaiah is, the, is one of the many statements that you can have a life that is not in condemnation, that faced with shame because he did not give in and gives to his people his own name, then you can trust to his experience and know all that you need. May we pray together. And a moment of quiet, because I, I don't know, Not everyone will be able to use it in in any particular way, but there will be moments of shame that have scarred a number of lives here. Lord God, we give to you our shame, recognizing that Jesus faced shame for us and was able to have a face that was set like flint. You have vindicated him in raising him from the dead. And we ask that we may know the power of his forgiveness and your vindication in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.